working through the Heidelberg, and we're at Lord's Day 8. Going to try to get through four or five Lord's Days today. And if I skip over questions that you have questions or want further explanation about, stop me and let's talk about those for a minute because we definitely want to do that. This portion of the Heidelberg starts to unpack the Apostles' Creed. Why? What did we just cover last week? I know, it's been a week. Talk about faith. Talk about having saving faith and what's required for saving faith. And we said it's certain knowledge and it's a sure conviction that those things are true and that this can only come by a work of the Spirit in us. And then it's a pretty natural extension from that. Certain knowledge of what? What do I need to believe? What are, what are the factual claims that I need to be believed, that I need to believe, of which I need to be convinced for me to be a Christian, for me to be in the kingdom of God? And the Heidelberg's answer to that is a great historic creed going back about as old as we've got when it comes to intact confessions of faith. And we go to what we call the Apostles' Creed. And this next section of the Heidelberg Catechism is going to unpack the Apostles' Creed. What role uh, do the, does the Apostles' Creed, and then we've also talked about the Nicene Creed. Uh, several months ago uh, in Sunday school, we went through the Nicene Creed in some detail. We've talked about that. W- what role do these creeds play in our church? When do we use the Apostles of the Nicene Creed, guys? Confessing our faith before the supper. And so it's a way for us to summarize the requirements of coming to this table, that we possess faith, that we believe these certain things. And you'll hear me say a lot that faith is not just some nebulous feeling. Oh, I have faith. I, I, I wish things will work out. And that's what faith is. No, faith is the, the conviction that certain things are true. And in the creeds, we summarize what those things are. How is the Apostles' Creed divided? Well, that's the exact question, 24 in the Heidelberg. How are these articles divided? What's the answer in summary? Three parts. What are the three parts? Hey, pro tip, it's the triune God we worship. The three parts are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So then you have to pause for just a minute in the Heidelberg, and you have to say, what? Trinity, what? What is this religion that has a God that says there is one God, but three persons? Is that just three different ways of looking at the same God? You're supposed to say, no, that's modalism, Patrick. Don't you know how this works? We, we know all these heresies that come up by messing up the Trinity. And so the, the Heidelberg in question 24 and 25 digs into the Trinity for a moment. And it really is the unique uh, distinguishing feature of Christianity as a religion in the world. Um, Christianity is the only religion that says there is one true God and that that God exists in three persons, not three gods, three persons of the one God and that those three persons are distinct. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. It's the only religion that has something like this. So how do we know that it's true? Where did this idea, it's pretty complicated, where did this idea of a trinity come from? Scripture. Scripture. It's not a trick question. This is how God revealed himself in his word. And if he hadn't, we'd call the thing crazy. Because who would make up something this complicated that is so uh, impossibly difficult for a human mind to fully comprehend? Well, God, just in his being. He didn't make it up. But God, in his being is more than our finite human brains can fully comprehend. Okay, well, when you say it that way, that doesn't sound so weird, does it? We talked about progressive revelation. We talked about how 
It's one story in the Old and New Testaments. It's the same God. That God does not change. But what that God tells his people, how much God says to us, gets clearer over time. So we talked about where's the first place in the Bible where you find a gospel promise. What book, what chapter? They used to say in seminary. What book, what chapter? Genesis 3. Everything's still good in one. We don't need the gospel yet. Uh, I mean, we do. We just don't know it. Uh, Genesis 3. This promise that the seed of Eve will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so, does that gospel promise in Genesis 3 tell us that God himself is going to take on human flesh and live a perfectly obedient life and die on a cross for our sins and be raised from the grave in three days. No, it doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that the seed will crush the serpent. Progressive revelation. We get more information and God makes it more clear over time. Everybody understand that? The Old Testament sacrifices. They say something that is true about sin and about what's required for redemption. But do they tell you that God himself will need to take on human flesh and take all of our sin upon himself and die so that the wrath of God can be satisfied? Nope, doesn't say that much. When does God say that much? Christ comes. (laughs) Progressive revelation. We learn more. We get more details along the way. But nothing changed except the amount of information, the amount of clarity that God gives us. That's what happens with lots of things in the Bible, and it's what happens with the Trinity. Does the Old Testament speak clearly and directly and emphasize that God is three persons? No. The clearest statements in the Old Testament about God, especially in an ancient Near Eastern context where all of the competing religions and all the religions of idols had dozens of gods and hundreds of gods, what's the most important statement about the nature of God in the Old Testament? The Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. One God. Now, does that mean the Old Testament is completely silent and gives you no hints that God might be three persons? No. I mean, come on. We've been reading. We just read Isaiah. We've read read Psalms. You hear so much about Christ, about the one who's going to come, who's greater than David. And then every now and then it slips in some comment about this one that you think that person Only God could do that. Only God could prevent his body from decaying in the grave. Only God could obtain perfect righteousness. You have those hints. You have the spirit hovering over the water. You have the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, which God-like things are said about. This ain't no ordinary angel. Something else is going on here. You uh, You have Melchizedek. You have all these strange things in the Old Testament that... You know matter, and you know are important, and Israel knew they're important, and Israel knew they had meaning, but you don't fully understand them until Christ. So one of the the greatest eye-opening moments in the history of, uh, of, of the Christian religion is when Christ, post resurrection, is walking with disciples and is teaching them all the things the scripture said about him. Like, hey, remember this thing you knew back in? And they had it memorized for the most part because they didn't have a lot of copies of the Bible they could walk around with. You know that verse you know? And they sped off that verse. And can you imagine Jesus just saying, yeah, that was me. <laughs> what? And they walked through. Yeah, here's how that was me. So both testaments speak that God is one and that God is three persons. But we get greater clarity about that into, in, in the New Testament. Um, and really, it makes sense. The Old Testament emphasis, and I mean God's emphasis, not just as a writer, is that the one true God made all that is. We fell into sin and made a mess of all that is. <laughs> And something 
needed to be done about it that we could not do ourselves. That's the story of the Old Testament. You get to Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and the prophets have talked themselves hoarse at this point. And so they're just shut up for a few hundred years because what more could we say to you people? And then John the Baptist comes and the people are longing for the Savior and John the Baptist just says, that guy, that guy, that's what we've been waiting for. That, that's it. That's how God's going to do it. It's, it's, it's that guy. So then what happens in the New Testament? Christ, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, comes, dwells with his people, actually accomplishes the thing that needed to be done because of the mess that we made. And then what happens after Christ's resurrection? He sends the Holy Spirit who actually applies to us the thing that the Son accomplished, that the Father decreed from creation, before creation. So the the scriptures unfold in a very Trinitarian manner. And so the creed unfolds that way as well. Um, It is important. So from the New Testament, what are some examples in the New Testament it can either be verses or ideas, events, whatever. What are some examples of the New Testament that help demonstrate to us that God is three person, that, that the Trinity are distinct persons? New? Oh, you got all three there, don't you? Yeah, you got the son being baptized. You got the voice, the father from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. That's pretty good news. And the spirit descending like a dove. Yep. What else? Got nothing? Christ receives worship. Uh, we have that in Revelation. Yeah. Christ allows himself to be worshiped. Christ believes Christ is God, and Christ knows that he's not the Father. What's one just really simple, maybe we haven't even thought about it, one really simple way you can prove from Scripture that Christ knows he is not the Father? That's an example of it. His prayer life. Why is Jesus praying? (laughs) Why is Jesus praying? Because the Son is not the Father. And, and later, when Jesus prays in John, in his high priestly prayer, he actually prays that the Father would send his people the Spirit. <laughs> right? Jesus makes it very clear that he is God. He has no doubt about his divinity. He has no doubt about the Father's divinity. And he has no doubt that he is not the Father. And this is important. It's only Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who took on human nature. The first person of the Trinity, the Father, did not take on flesh. The Spirit does not take on flesh. It is only the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who died. This actually becomes kind of a thing you can get in theological trouble with if you're not careful on this point. Only the second person of the Trinity, in his human nature, died. That's an important theological truth from Scripture. The Holy Spirit was sent... Uh, not the Father. Uh, The Son and the Father sent the Spirit. The Spirit is the only one that Scripture says regenerates God's people. The Father doesn't make you alive in Christ. The Father purposed and decreed that you'd be alive in Christ. But the Spirit makes you alive in Christ. One person, one God, three persons. See, I'm already a heretic. One person... Three gods. And so it makes perfect sense that with Scripture presenting God this way and Scripture and and redemptive history unfolding in a Trinitarian way that the Apostles' Creed would be organized in a Trinitarian way. And so that is how it's organized. Father, Son, and Spirit. Questions about that in Lord's Day 8? Hello, quiet this morning. All right, Lord's Day 9. Starts with the Father. And uh, so the question is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? 
that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, in whom I so trust as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all the things necessary for body and soul, and further that whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he will turn my good, he will turn to my good, for he is able to do it, being Almighty God and willing also, being a faithful father. The answer unpacks what are we going to talk about with respect to the Father? We're going to talk about creation, we're going to talk about providence. Creation and providence are the way that the catechism is going to think through the Father. So let's talk about Maker. God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Maker is constantly under attack. It's not just a modern thing that people want to come up with ideas that say, God did not make this. That is an ancient desire. Because the moment you admit that God made you, it imposes an obligation, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you're not just a creature, but you have a creator. And everybody knows, Christian or not, religious or not, everybody knows the creator has rights over the creature. Everybody knows it. It, it, is, it is built into the fabric of reality. And so people will resist strongly the idea that there is a creator. Because when they acknowledge that there's a creator, now they owe somebody something. And so the, over the years, people have taken different approaches to this. Oh, there's lots of gods, and gods are just like humans, and gods procreate with humans, and, you get the, and it's all just a big mess, and there's not really any supreme authority that you anybody owe anything to. That's a lot less popular now. What's, what's the most popular way to get around the creature-creator problem today? What's the most acceptable way to say, I have no creator that I owe something to? Call it materialism, call it, um, uh, you can call it evolution if you're going to be precise about what you mean by evolution. Um, but it's this idea that if you have vast amounts of time plus chance, you can get this. And so the only thing that you would owe anything to is luck. <laughs> Your only debts are to luck. Um, and so this present form of our universe, when we look around and we say, how do we get here? How do we get boys and girls and men and women? And how did we get uh, ice and ice makers? And how did we get Coke? And how do we get coffee? And how did we get religions? And how did we get church services? How did all of this come to be? And the popular answer is chance. Vast amounts of time, lots and lots of Accidents or unlikely events add up to all of this. Now, there's two problems with that, to quote one of my favorite movies. The first problem, which is not in my favorite movie, is nothing could be more contrary to what the scriptures teach us. And the ideas that people have today that you can blend these two. It's very rare that you see me die on a hill outside of the Trinity but it's the first sentence of the Apostles' Creed, maker of heaven and earth. You cannot take God as the personal creator out of the Christian religion and retain the Christian religion. You've invented another one. So the first problem with it is that it is contrary to what the scriptures teach. This chance, materialistic, whatever how far back you want to go, if there is something there other than a personal God doing what he said in Genesis 1, the religion you're talking about is no longer out of the scriptures. The second problem with it, and this is quoting one of my favorite movies, one of Kate's favorite movies, Murder by Death, it's stupid. It's the stupidest theory I've ever heard. It doesn't make a bit of sense. Look around you. Look around you with anything other than absolute, unquestioned, unchallenged, blind faith in the worst sense of the term that there is no God and you would never come to this conclusion. You never. 
I was reading an article this weekend of a guy trying to explain how, according to this theory, we got not only humans, but we got male and female humans within enough reproductive lifetime for them to procreate. How do you explain in that one? It's stupid. Don't be stupid. Seriously, don't be stupid. You want to hate God? Hate God. Sin boldly. I hate you. I defy you. I will not give you my life. I'm going to live for myself. But don't be stupid. Don't walk around and say, I'm not sure if there is a God. It seems to me like all of this could just happen. Just tell the truth. People's problem is not they don't believe in God. People's problem is they don't want to admit they're creatures because then you owe something to a creator. I'm the one who's arrogant. I know, I know. I'm the one who claims to have invented the theory for the origins of the universe. I thought I was the one who said, I can't figure it out. Don't know. Good thing God told me. Yeah. 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 I don't know why it stings because it could like it, it is a nonsensical argument. Where is the humility of their position? They're accusing me of arrogance, and I'm the one saying I am subject to the truth of another. And they're the ones saying, no, it's not my truth. You're going to call me arrogant? I I mean, I can't even get mad about it. So what do you do with people saying, okay, there is a creator, but then they want to argue about how God did it. They want to tell you, well, he did it this way, or he did it this way, or he did it this way. The bottom line is, he does that. Uh, it depends on what any of those ways are. <laughs> any of those ways within a reasonable reading of Genesis 1 and 2. And most of those discussions are so far afield from Genesis 1 and 2. Because so, the other thing we can't accept is so-called theistic evolution. This idea that, okay, we need God because we don't have any other way to explain how the first stuff came to be. Because that's the other thing that's stupid about pure materialism. Is you go back far enough, you still have to say, where did that speck of molten lava come from? Like at some point, you still get there. There has to be an uncreated thing at the beginning of something. And what we're saying is what Scripture says, which is that uncreated thing is an almighty, purposeful God. All right. Well, I can kind of get from that to here without having to make a bunch of big leaps. The uncreated thing being a molten core of lava, I still don't know how I got the uncreated thing. Um, theistic evolution, like we, ha- we have to reject the idea that God created stuff and was passive or indifferent in the means by which that stuff created what we see. And we have to accept the special creation of Adam and Eve. So, you know, I don't want to get hung up with people on, obviously, I I was Doug Kelly's teaching assistant. I studied this for three years with him. I, I have very strong feelings about the age of the earth. I'm not going to have that fight with somebody. But the hill I'll die on will include the special creation of Adam and Eve because it's not an insignificant detail in the story. It's where the story begins. And what you're telling me when you say that is an allegory that God's using to describe a more complex process by which blah, 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 blah. I can't go there with you. One, I know Hebrew. And two, In the English, it's not what God says. It's just not what God says. And he doesn't say it like he says, a sower went to sow some seed. Okay, I could learn some things from that. He says, I put my breath in him. And then all throughout scripture for the next 6,000 years, he keeps pointing back to that and saying things like, because I put my breath in you, this is true. Because this happened in Genesis 3, this is true. So you, you, you can't take Genesis 1 and 3 and say, you know, it's a parable for some other version. Does that, does that help? Because you're right. You're, you're right that there are areas that we can get into where we should not be as certain as we feel about how to interpret the first six, three, six, 12 chapters of Genesis. Uh, personally, 
I don't find many people fighting over those areas. I find people fighting over the ones that we should die on that hill. Yeah. Death before the fall. Well, I mean, there could be animal death before the fall. Why not? It unravels the entire theological point God is making about death. That's not a small thing. So now it's just, I need you to ignore the plain reading of the text, and I need you to throw away 6,000 years of of subsequent theological point-making and history that God imports into that. And then my question is, okay, you're asking me to do some pretty big things there. Why? Well, because we can't come up with a scientific explanation for how this could have happened other than a miracle. Uh, uh, what? That, I'm sorry, is that, the pers- is that my argument? Or the, I, I forget which side we're on now. Uh, absolute madness. Let's get, so let's go with one of the main arguments you'll hear on this point, because I like this, because you can tell I get worked up about this. God could not have created an earth that looks this old because that would make God a trickster, right? The earth looks old. We, we, we know what tectonic plates are. We know that they can move and they can make mountains and they can make canyons. And we, we get that, right? And, and we, we know some of the things that have happened for them to happen geologically. It takes a tremendous amount of time. And if God just made it like that and skipped the tremendous amount of time, God would be a cheater. And God can't be a cheater, right? I mean, the first one of these is in Genesis. How long does it take light to get from the sun to the earth? Is it instant? Is the light that we're seeing right now reflecting off our cars light that's coming off the sun in this moment? No, it's light that came off the sun. I don't know. It's been a long time since I was in astronomy. Eight minutes ago. I like this. <laughs> People know stuff. So when, when God said, let there be light, and scripture says there was light, what scripture really means is eight minutes later, there was light. Actually, he didn't even make the light-making luminaries until another day. But that, skip that for a minute. How could God make the world with the appearance of age? That would be a trickster. No, that would be a miracle. So where should we go to think about this? Well, let's go to the miracles. William, didn't I have a verse for you? I didn't assign it to you, did I? Oh, yeah. Hey, William, Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema, Israel, one God. Got it? Good. All right, we're on this chapter now. Thanks, William. Kate, Matthew 14. You know what really bothers me about that story? It's totally unrealistic. Some of y'all bake bread, right? Daphne bakes a loaf every weekend for us for communion. I mean, you got to mix the ingredients. It's got to have rise time. It's got to have rest time. You can't just have a fully formed loaf of bread appear out of nowhere. And, and fish. fish. Fish don't, are, they're not just appearing as adults. They come from roe, fish eggs, and then they turn into little fish, and the little fish become bigger fish, and eventually they're big enough you can eat them. You can't just have fully formed, edible fish that would feed people just out of nowhere. Does anybody ever make that argument against these miracles? Another example you could use would be the wine at Cana at the wedding feast, right? And Jesus gets credit for producing out of water the best tasting wine of the night got a few wine snobs in here the best tasting wine is not wine that was made five minutes ago that's not how this works wine needs time and age and so this trickster jesus just comes along and makes aged delicious wine instantly 
unacceptable. Unacceptable. You see, you see how silly this is? And, and also, when God made Adam and Eve, was, was he supposed to make them as embryos floating in disambiguated space so that they had time for nine months to form into, into full uh, self-sufficient humans? And, and then they were going to, I guess the, the cheetahs were going to feed them. I don't know how this was going to work, but there were, somebody was, and then, and then they could be adults and then you could start Genesis, right? No, God made Adam and Eve as adults. <laughs> he created humans with the appearance of age. And we don't say, what a trickster. We say, no, that makes perfect sense. Of course, if you were going to create, that's the way you would do it. Why would the earth be any different? Why would the earth be any different? He doesn't need trees to produce fruit. So he can make them both at the same time. He doesn't need stars to produce light. He is light. He can put the light wherever he wants. He's God, you guys. It's a miracle. Now, you know, I love science. I studied science in high school and college. I, I enjoy exploring the world that God made, learning just how carefully and intricately God made things. And there are things we'll call them way down in the weeds, we can learn about earth and about life that scripture doesn't speak to. The, 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 the protein strands the, that, that underlie life, uh, scripture doesn't speak directly to those. We can learn a lot by studying them, but nothing we ever learn is contrary to what scripture says about them. The same is true with creation. You've got to remember, when people are fighting against creation, it is not a fight of religion versus science. It's a fight of their rejection of God, no matter who God is, versus nothing else. That's it. That's the whole thing. Are there things that we learn that cause us to go back to scripture and then back to the evidence we found and think through and wrestle through. How did this get here? How did this happen? How would God have? Absolutely. The world is not immediately understandable when you look at every single thing. But anytime somebody looks at it and the place that they start with in their heart is there can be no God because if there was a God, I would owe him something. You should be very suspicious of their conclusions. That's not where you want to end up. And you don't have to be I mean, I'm sympathetic to your point about uh, the way they make you feel like you're prideful. They'll also make you feel like you're dumb. I mean, kids and teenagers, especially y'all, you go to, you get into high school and then college sciences, or you're just talking with adults in their young 20s and above. And the fact that you believe what God said about how the world was created is going to cause some people to think you were the most backwards, non-thinking person they've ever met. Who believes that nonsense? And you've got to not be insecure. You've got to answer their question with a question, which is, what do you believe? And, and listen to what they believe and think through the consequences of what they believe. Don't run from that conversation. Listen to what they say. And if what they say is, in the end, there's no God because I don't want there to be a God. You say, okay, that's a choice they're allowed to make. It's not one you have to feel inferior or insecure about. And then they say, what do you believe? And you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. <laughs> you work your way through that and, and be confident and secure in that. God put forth his creative power in what he made. And this doctrine of what we call creation ex nihilo, that God created out of nothing. He had no raw materials to work with. He made them all himself uh, that is an essential Christian teaching. Does, one last sentence. Does science play a role? Absolutely. But science can only deal with things that already exist. That's what science is. It deals with things that already exist. It cannot, science has no special power to see behind those things and explain why or how they exist. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, they're not up for this. Yeah. So let's say, um, let's speak graciously about those people for a moment, which means the next part I'm going to say is not going to be so gracious. Um, kids, when you're talking to people who are Christians, they love Jesus, they want to follow Jesus, and they say, but, but you can't believe that earth created in six days stuff, we have science, we know all this other stuff is true, the Bible and evolution are compatible and all those things. Uh, the first thing you need to think is a little bit of sympathy, because normally what's behind that is they believe that unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus, could never come that far. They want unbelievers to believe in Jesus. And so they, they feel this pressure that they've got to give unbelievers the easiest Jesus to believe in that is possible. And saying that the earth is 6,000 something years old and that evolution isn't true and that there was a talking snake in Genesis 3 feels like a lot to them. An unbeliever is never going to believe that part. So let's accept what they believe about that part as long as they'll believe the most important part, which is Jesus died for their sins. So we should have a little bit of sympathy for somebody whose starting point is not, I hate God, I don't want to do what he says. That was the other crowd. And this crowd is, I want more people to be able to accept Jesus. And I believe this makes it easier for people to accept Jesus. You, you get that sympathetic lens? The problem is multifold. The problem is you're not telling the unbeliever the most important thing. It feels like the most important thing that you're going to tell an unbeliever is that Jesus died for their sins. And that is a very important thing. But that is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that God revealed himself in his word, and his word is the supreme authority of my life. Whether it's easy to believe, hard to believe, popular, unpopular, easy to understand, hard to understand, doesn't matter. The word that God revealed is the ultimate authority of my life. And so when you say, I want to believe Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, but if the culture doesn't like it very much, as long as it's not against Jesus, I'll take the culture's view rather than scripture's view. You're actually lying to them about what Christianity is. Not on purpose, but you're lying. And then what's going to happen is they're going to get somewhere down the path and they're going to think, well, you know what? I was taught to believe. I was taught to believe that Jesus died for my sins and every other area of life, I should just follow my own conscience. You, you have not helped them follow Jesus. Uh, so I would, I would not go down that path. I, I would encourage people, most conversations about creation, like most conversations about gender, gender roles, marriage, divorce, money, the existence of hell. Most of those conversations where we would find ourselves fighting and debating, especially with other Christians, need to be put on pause so that we can first have a discussion about what do you believe about Scripture? Because if you don't believe Scripture is your ultimate authority, I don't know why we're wasting our time talking about gender or sexuality or marriage or anything else. Because all I'm going to be able to say in the end is, yeah, but the scriptures say. And your response is going to be, so what? That's one source of information among many. And I'm going to say, no, it's the ultimate authority. And then we're going to be at an impasse. So why do we waste all this time arguing about whatever, when really what we need to figure out is what do we believe about scripture? And creation is a huge category uh, where that's the real discussion that needs to take place. I don't want to talk to you about geology, astronomy, 
physics, biology, if we're not first going to talk about what is the ultimate authority? When we come to an impasse, what's going to win? And if the answer is scripture above all, I do want to talk about all those things because I love them and I think they're fascinating. But if the answer is, well, scripture, unless it's really ridiculous, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't help. No. No, the test is not asking you what do you believe, unless the test is asking you what do you believe. <laughs> but when I was a chemistry major, the test wasn't asking you what you believe. The test was asking you for the answer that you'd studied for this test. Um, if you find yourself in those circumstances, you will have plenty of opportunity in class discussion for the professor and others to know what you believe. That's the harder challenge is not what you write on the test. Write on the test what you got to write on the test to get an A, as long as it doesn't say what do you believe. Uh, but the courage of your convictions in a moment like that, not to be the obnoxious person who every single week in class is rolling their eyes at how absurd these claims are, but choosing the right moment in discussions where you say, that's not the only perspective. That's I mean, that's a tough statement to make. That sounded so simple. And yet, I think there's many of us in this room who know how hard that is to say out loud in one of those moments. Is there another question? And I think it's good to be able to articulate their side well for them because then they have the respect to know that you get it. Yeah. Like, I remember my cousin was at Emory, and he had a, a Jewish professor of a religion class. And the guy knew everything about every religion in the world. Like, Chip was just blown away. So he asked him, he says, well, what's your view of Christianity? And the guy summed it up perfectly. Like he gave the plan of salvation, he gave the cross, he gave the whole bit. And then he looked at Chip and he goes, I just don't believe that. But it was like, at least you had the respect to yeah. say, well, you've studied it, you know what I'm, you know, you know the, your stuff. Yeah. I think there's value in that. There, there absolutely is. And what you will find in most of your discussions, this is true of kids and adults and everything in between, when you're discussing these issues with most other people, you should not assume they've thought about it very much. Doesn't matter if they've been in the church their whole lives. Doesn't mean You should not assume that they've thought about it very much. If they're not being intentionally trained in their homes and in their churches to ask hard questions. Kids, it may not feel like that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to be doing at this stage in life is asking your parents and your pastor and your shepherding elder very hard questions because life has a lot of really, really hard questions. And the worst thing you could ever do is go through these years in the church and go out on your own and think to yourself, I had all these hard questions that they could never even answer. Try us. Try us. A ask your hard questions. We will get to places where we say, yeah, this is a tough one you really have to wrestle with. I'm not saying these things are simple. But I'm saying sometimes the assumption can be there that you think Christianity can't answer this question. And my challenge to you would be, have you ever asked? You've got to ask. And then give us a chance to work through it. And a lot of the people that you meet that are so sure about what they believe. There is no God. Christianity's not true. They're so sure about it. When you start asking them questions, they've never spent 15 real minutes in their life thinking. And, and yeah, you can believe whatever you want to believe if you don't think about it very much. The problem with having those other views is that if you think about them very much, they fall apart in your hand. Because what they turn into is, I don't want to. Every other religion and non-religion becomes, I don't want to. Again, on a philosophical level, I'm fine with that. I just want people to be honest. It's not an intellectual debate. They don't want to. All right. Good. Hebrews 11.3.
By faith. What are we talking about? We're talking about faith. Faith not being some abstract set of things that we don't, we don't ever label. No. Faith is the conviction that certain things are true. And it's the creed is working through what those things are. And one of the ways... One of the ways that we learn what's true and what's not is by looking at the world around us and then going back to Scripture to ask questions. It's a, it's a great way to learn. Questions about creation, and then we'll talk quickly about providence. Wrap up. All right, what is providence? Providence is two things. Providence is, first of all, God's preserving or sustaining the universe. Just the idea that if God ever stopped intervening, we would stop being. If God stopped doing what he's doing to sustain the universe, the universe would cease to be sustained. It would undo itself. The second aspect of God's providence is God's governing the universe, or we might say controlling, so that all the things that happen work together for the purposes that he planned, the purposes for which he made them. Um, I didn't assign somebody Hebrews 1, 3, did I? Somebody, somebody grab Hebrews 1. Somebody grab Colossians 1. Somebody grab Proverbs 16. Uh, Hebrews 1, 3. Up, sorry, upholding by the word of his power. Just what would happen if he failed to exercise his power in providence. We would not be upheld. It's, it's, it's that much undoing. Who's got Colossians 1.17? Somebody, anybody? In him all things hold together. What would happen if he ended his relationship with all things? They would not be held together, which doesn't sound good, right? <laughs> not much good comes of that. Uh, so that's one aspect of providence, just that God is holding it all together. And then the other is God's government. Who's got Proverbs 16, 33? Oh, now wait a minute. Are you saying that God controls... Where the dice stop when you roll them. God doesn't care about that kind of stuff. God cares about big stuff like Jesus dying for sins. Create. There's big moments God cares about. God doesn't care about your dice roll. Right? Is God too busy? You've heard that before. God's got big stuff to worry about. He's not worrying about my card game or my... Can God be too busy? Let's just start there for a moment. No, he's infinite. Well, God doesn't care. Well, is there, wait, is there anything at all in the universe that God made about which you could honestly say, God doesn't care about that? What? Who would? No, that can't be right. No, God, uh, what seems to us to be pure chance is really and always under God's governance. There is no such thing as chance. The story of uh, Jacob and uh, all the way through. Just everything in scripture and everything in our lives testifies to the fact that God does care, that God is actively engaged in the world in which he's made, and that all things work for his purposes. That should be incredibly comforting. It's funny how a lot of Christians, their first response to that is discomfort. Oh, and I'm just a puppet and I'm not free and I'm not. so and we we can talk about those things, but should that really be your first response? Should your first response to the idea that an all-powerful, all-loving God who is your God, that you are saying, "My Lord and my God," the fact that he is in absolute control and not a hair can fall from your head apart from his will, should that really be discomforting? <laughs> That's my only comfort in life and death, is that I am not my own, but I belong. See what I did there? We've got a good class going here. Um, it's of great comfort to the Christian that in a world filled with problems and dangers, that God 
governs and upholds all the things that he's created. So we'll stop there. Next week we'll pick up uh, in Lord's Day 11. It takes that same concept of providence and it talks about one very specific area of providence, which is saved. Who is belie- Who believes? Who will have this faith? Who will be saved? And how does that fit under God's providence? But let's pause there. We've got a, a minute or two for questions around providence in general and creation. What's the difference between God's providence and God's sovereignty? If there's one? Sovereignty is his Authority and providence is his activity. Sovereignty is the why, providence is the how. Other questions? Can you be a Christian and not believe scripture is the ultimate authority? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's be real. God cannot save you apart from the means that God himself said save. So that like, it's a little bit of a trick with the, can God build a rock so big he can't carry it sort of thing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Vain jangling. Yes. Vain Wayne jangling. Um, Has there ever been anyone who died without the specific knowledge that scripture is their ultimate authority who is now in the kingdom of heaven. Yes. The thief on the cross didn't have a lot of time to think about it. Right? So that absolutely. We would not generally want to say that someone with the scriptures as a part of their life is able to both say that Christ is Lord and his word is not. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. It's like, it, it's like the church membership problem. Are there people in the kingdom? Does God save people outside of his church? Yes, but not usually. It, it is a really dangerous thing to say you have God as father and not church as mother. It's just not the way God works generally. So, I would be very concerned, and that's why I pulled back on your question. If someone were asking you that from the other perspective, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, save me, but I do not, Scripture is not my ultimate authority, I would have more concerns about that. 